This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Talking today with the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Alan Taylor about his new and necessary book, American Republics, A Continental History of the United States, 1783-1850. A necessary book, Alan, because it provides so clear an understanding of the hard questions that divide and threaten to wreck our own currently imperfect union. Maybe you can begin with a few words about the instability and uncertainty of the early United States, about its fears and dreams of empire, its inability to fit the principle of freedom to the practice of slavery. Well, thank you very much, Lewis. That's very kind. Uh, I, I, I think that we do ourselves a disservice if we romanticize the origins of the United States and cast it as some sort of political utopia from which we have fallen. Uh, I, th- I think we do a lot better if we see that division, uh, disagreement uh, have been in place in the United States from the start. And the union of the states that's created during the American Revolution is meant not just to win the war against Britain, but also to preserve the peace within North America. Americans identified primarily with their state, say Virginia or South Carolina or Massachusetts, uh, and secondarily with a region, whether it be the Northeast or the South or the West, which was at that time anything west of the Appalachian Mountains. And they didn't have a strong identity as Americans. And so Benjamin Franklin warned that if if the Americans of these different regions and different states didn't unite, that the next time they came together, it would be to cut one another's throats. There was a fear of civil wars woven into the United States from the very start. And indeed, the whole project of the United States was meant to keep the peace among Americans as well as to win independence from Great Britain. The settlement is, you have the colonies of the, on the coast, and then the, mm-hmm. the west opening up beyond the Allegheny Mountains, and, and the, yeah. um, the regions are afraid of one another. Yes, and, and there, was, there was a conviction among um, American leaders of the late 18th century, early 19th century, that the United States had to expand or it would die, that it needed more land uh, for sale for the federal government and for the states to sell so that they could finance their war debt from the American Revolution. They needed more land to accommodate a population that was doubling every 22 years and in which the vast majority of people were farmers, so they needed more farms. So the United States was premised on expansion westward at the expense of native peoples, because those lands weren't empty of people. There were native peoples in, in all of the lands desired by the United States. But while everybody, whether in South Carolina or Pennsylvania or New York, agreed that the country should expand westward, 
there was fear that the country might expand um, in a segment of the West that would favor one region over the other. So, for example, if the United States were to conquer Canada and add that without also conquering Florida or Louisiana to the southeast, then the northern states would gain power in this uneasy union. Or if the expansion was into Florida and Louisiana and not into Canada, then the South would gain power. And so while the Union is a solution in the short term to the uneasiness of the different American states and regions, there is a danger that if its expansion is unequal and favors one region over the other, that it will trigger the old anxieties and lead to a secession by some of the states and then a war by the other states to try to force that region back into the Union. But both the the Southerners and the Northerners, Jefferson's Empire of Liberty uh, or the Southern notions of expanding into Texas reserve the, the liberty for white people rather than uh, blacks or Indians. There is that notion of a of, of kind of white uh, supremacy. Well, they certainly reserved it for citizens of the United States. Uh, And almost all of those citizens were men, and they were white men. Uh, There were African-Americans who were free, but they're a very small minority of the overall African-American population of the time. And the United States, in its expansion westward, the the imagination of the place of native peoples in the future is, is not to preserve their sovereignty, their independence, but to absorb them fully into the United States in which they would lose their cultures as well as uh, their, their native governments. And so, so Jefferson insisted that, you know, he wanted to incorporate Indians into the United States, but they would have to cease to be Indians. Uh, and then uh, Jefferson is, is really out to provide farms for the people who are his constituents, who are the citizens of the United States, who are white men. And he, while he would like to get rid of slavery in the United States, he could only imagine doing so in a very gradual process in which slave masters would be compensated and that the former slaves would all be compelled to relocate, to be deported to West Africa or to um, someplace in the Caribbean. So Jefferson does imagine an empire of liberty, but there are limits on his imagination. There are racial limits in which native peoples will cease to be independent peoples, will cease to have their cultures, and in which he imagines a future in which there will be no African Americans. Now, it is, uh, it's a complete fantasy, the notion that you could relocate millions of people Uh, At that time, with such a a limited federal government and with such a distrust between the states, or to just think that voluntarily the slave masters would give up their very valuable property. So it's entirely a fantasy, but it's a fantasy that's very empowering for the expansion of the United States. Uh, Also, contrary to popular mythology, most of the founders did not intend to create a democracy. Uh, 
I mean, they, they, they designed a rep national republic to restrain state democracies, which they blamed for the Union's troubles. Yeah, they, they were very concerned during the 1780s that the new state governments created by the revolution were too responsive to public opinion. Uh, the, the people who were writing the federal constitution were people who were worried that the interests of private property were being sacrificed by these state governments in order to remain popular. And the chief thing they were concerned about is that state governments were doing things to inflate the, mon the money supply uh, or to otherwise uh, interfere in the rights of contract in order to help the majority of people in their states who were debtors, who owed money to creditors. And the, so the more propertied people in these new states were convinced that their state governments were too democratic, that they were too volatile and too responsive to public opinion. There were some of these leaders who were even toying with, well, maybe we need to have a constitutional monarchy such as they have in Britain. One of those people was Alexander Hamilton. So there was a real concern by people like George Washington or James Madison that the revolution was spinning out of control and that the state governments were too democratic and it might lead to a, a real reaction in favor of a constitutional monarchy. So to head off that reaction and to contain the democratic practices of the states, they convened in Philadelphia and wrote a new federal constitution meant to create a, uh, a national republic that would be superior to the state republics and one in which there would be a filtration of leadership that was meant to create um, a leadership cadre in the forms of Congress and the executive branch who would be fundamentally uh, dependent on election, but would have a certain leeway um, from public opinion. That was, that was the imagined goal of the people who wrote the federal constitution. And it was not to create uh, what we call a democracy today that is a government highly responsive to public opinion at almost all times. Yes, I mean, I, Madison says somewhere that the country should be run by the men with the most wisdom to discern and the most virtue to pursue the common good of the society, which are uh, rich property owners uh, like himself and likely most of the delegates to the convention in 1787. Yeah, it was a time in which education was much more limited than today and in which the people who had uh, any kind of college education or who may have educated themselves in a, in a, to a high degree, they needed much more leisure time than was available to your typical American who was a small farmer preoccupied with cultivating his land. And so there was a conviction that it's only these people who uh, who have the money to, to get an advanced education, a very small segment of the population, where we're talking about one or two percent, that, that they should be the governing class for the country, uh, that they would have the wisdom and the experience and the knowledge in order to govern best on behalf of everybody. 
and that it was the role of the voters to just pick between these gentlemen of superior wealth and education to determine which particular individuals should hold which particular offices. Talk about how the argument between central government and state government plays out in the election of 1800. The the, uh, Federalists on one side and and the with Hamilton and the Republicans on the other side with uh, Jefferson. Well, the, the American Revolution was fought against the efforts by the British to centralize their empire, to increase the power of, of their um, parliament over the entire empire, including the colonies in North America. So in in resisting British rule, the, the revolutionaries were then very concerned, well, what kind of system will we establish here? Uh, Hamilton was perfectly comfortable with saying, let's just achieve independence and then let's construct a system that is very much like Britain's. So he wanted to have a president who would serve for life, would be indirectly elected and then serve for life. He wanted a Senate that would be indirectly elected and then serve for life terms. He wanted the federal government to appoint the governors of all of the states. And he wanted the federal government to have the power to veto any state law. Uh, Now, Hamilton did not get what he wanted out of the federal constitution at the federal convention in Philadelphia. Uh, But he is trying his best to try to read the constitution in ways that will empower the federal government to be superior to the states. And as it becomes clear during the early 1790s that that's what Hamilton is up to, it alienates other leaders of the United States, including James Madison, who was in Congress, and Thomas Jefferson, who happened to be in Washington's cabinet along with Hamilton. And Jefferson and Madison um, want to defend the the autonomy of the states in, in most aspects of American government. And so when we get to the election of 1800, it's going to pit the Federalist candidate, John Adams, who is running for re-election, against the Democratic-Republican candidate, Thomas Jefferson. And uh, it's going to be a real um, philosophical divide within the country over whether the Constitution should be read in a very expansive, broad way that will construct a strong national government or if it will be read in a much more limited way in which um, the sovereignty of the individual states will be preserved to a large degree. Talk about what what does Washington itself, the city, look like in 1800? I mean, you have coffles of slaves shuffling through the streets and it's Somebody describes it as a Sahara of solitude and waste, you know, remarkable for its swamps and malaria and pig pens. Well, one of the the many radical things that the founders of the United States engage in is to create a new capital where there had just been farmland and forests and some swamps rather than than make do with one of the existing cities. 
they started out with a, the first capital of the United States under the new constitution was New York City. And then they moved to Philadelphia. And, and many people, particularly in the Northeast, thought, you know, Philadelphia is a pretty comfortable place to be. It's got an infrastructure in place. There are thousands of people already living here. There are substantial buildings. Why would we want to move off to the banks of the Potomac River where there are only a handful of, of farm buildings and a couple of villages? But they made that move as part of a political compromise to satisfy the leading politicians of Virginia, especially Jefferson and Madison, who were blocking Alexander Hamilton's financial plans for the country. And in order to approve those financial plans, they said, you're going to move the capital to the banks of Potomac right next to Virginia. And so the deal was made. Now, Jefferson also believed that if you got out of the big cities, that you would have a government that was closer to the common people who were farmers at that time. Uh, and But the, the United States' new, new capital is a, a handful of ambitious stone buildings, such as the Capitol and the White House, in the midst of a very rustic setting and a lot of ramshackle buildings thrown up for for workers and for taverns and boarding houses so that it strikes foreign visitors as a very weird place a place of magnificent aspirations but of a very sordid and dirty reality uh, and that reality included slavery. Uh, slavery was perfectly legal in the, in the District of Columbia. And the District of Columbia is in the midst of two states committed to preserving slavery, Maryland and Virginia. So that it's very jarring to people, either from the Northeast or from Europe, to be looking out the windows of Congress uh, and to be seeing enslaved people being uh, led off to market. Washington, D.C. became one of the great centers of the resale and transportation of enslaved people out of Maryland and Virginia headed to the Deep South, where the cotton plantations were expanding and had a voracious demand for increased enslaved labor. In 1800, what roughly is the percentage of the population that is slave? I mean, in there, a fifth of, how big is the United States in population? Three million people, something like that? Well, in 1790, it would be about three million people, a little bit over than that. And of them, uh, about a fifth of them were held in slavery. Now, that's in the nation as a whole. It's unevenly distributed so that in the south, southern states, uh, the slave population is about 40 percent. Of those, uh, half lived in Virginia. So Vir Virginia has, um, has the, the biggest single enslaved population of any American state in 1790. But Virginia is, its economy is, is relatively stagnant in the early republic. So that the, the people who own enslaved people, many of them feel that they have a, a surplus. 
And they're very open to making money by selling their so-called surplus to the more economically dynamic states of the deeper South, which after 1793 are booming because of the cultivation of cotton in places like Georgia and Tennessee and eventually Alabama and Mississippi and on across to Arkansas and Texas and down into Florida. So that there is a massive movement between 1793 and 1860 of of literally a couple of million Americans who have been held in slavery uh, are being moved out of these uh, upper southern states and into the deep south to the much harsher conditions of the cotton plantations and farms. But but slavery is, is, is slaves are property. I mean, they represent money, and 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 the, mm-hmm. the, the there are fears already in the 1790s of civil war on over well, the issue of, of slavery. Right. I mean that that's all, always in the background, isn't it? There, there's. Uh, from the very start of the United States, there's a fear about civil war. Now, it's not necessarily going to be between South and North. There are also fears it might be between East and West. And so the, the form that, that the big civil war would take in the 1860s uh, is not necessarily the form that civil war might have taken earlier in the history of the United States. But there always was a was a fear, particularly by by southern leaders, that northern leaders didn't understand them, didn't understand uh, their property system. The northern states were in the process of uh, liberating their states from slavery. That process was still incomplete. New York did not adopt a law for gradual emancipation until 1799. New Jersey didn't act until 1804, and they were very gradual bills in that they didn't free any of the existing slaves as of 1799 or 1804, but they just said that if you were born to uh, an enslaved mother after that date, that you would become free at some point in your 20s. So, but but Southerners looked at the at Northern political leaders and saw that they were starting this process of getting rid of slavery in their states, and they felt that these Northerners were not fully to be trusted to protect the enslaved property held by Southern masters, and that's why they wanted certain guarantees written into the Federal Constitution of 1787 to bolster their property rights and to bolster their relative political power in this stronger union. So there is that tension. Uh, Now, the the tension would increase over time, uh, would become much greater over time. Uh, And then uh, ultimately, when you get to the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860, uh, with electoral college votes entirely from the North, Uh, That would create uh, the ultimate crisis in which most of the southern states would decide to secede from the Union. All right. There's some marvelous characters that appear in your book. Talk talk a little bit about Andrew Jackson. Talk a little bit about uh, Douglas. 
talk a little bit about the Zachaniah Kinsley. Well, the three very different characters that you identify. I know, but that's what's so uh, wonderful about the yeah. book because it, it it goes into the many differences and contradictions. I mean, it is not. I mean, the the portrait of America in the nineteenth century is not a pastoral painting by uh, you know Norman Rockwell. I mean, it, it's right. it's it's filled with uh, anxiety, movement. Uh, on the Great Plains, as, as well as uh, in, in across the whole of the country. Right. The United States has always been a diverse country, uh, in which people have struggled to have, how to hold it all together. Which is why you know students or readers will often ask me, "Well, what did Americans of the 1830s think?" And I'll say, "Which Americans are you talking about?" Uh, the answer is, you know, what what is the range of views which they held on any particular issue at any particular time? Because there's always a range of view and always debate, and the debate is often extremely bitter. So I I, I think that. It's oddly reassuring to me to know that Americans have been fighting for a very long time. Uh, I, I think we do ourselves a disservice to say that we're all uniquely divided now as if this has never happened before. Uh, managing this kind of disagreement and difference is essential to the whole American experiment. Now, it helps if people are willing to compromise along the way. Now, the, the different characters you mentioned represent very different visions of, of what America was and what it could be. Andrew Jackson's a, a man of a very powerful will. He's a violent man, an openly violent man. He engaged in many duels and brawls, and he was committed to using violence to achieve political ends. He'd done so as a general in the War of 1812. He would do so as president of the United States, where he would push for the violent dispossession of virtually all of the native peoples living east of the Mississippi. Uh, he's also a man who's, who's committed to protecting the rights of southern states to preserve the slave system. He was himself a slaveholder, and he could be quite a vindictive slave owner, one who would uh, pay slave catchers an extra bonus if, if they would um, uh, brutally uh, whip uh, his runaway slaves before returning them to him. So, so Jackson's a, a very popular political leader. He's a, a decisive man, and he appeals to a certain element of this male electorate that, that wants a man of action who is uh, willing to push very aggressively for the expansion of the United States at the expense of Native peoples. Uh, Frederick Douglass, of course, very different man. He, he was born into slavery in Maryland. He escaped. He's a fugitive from the slave system. He goes to the North and becomes a very eloquent and popular speaker against slavery uh, and will become the editor of a very influential newspaper. He becomes uh, one of the principal abolitionists. Uh, abolitionists were a very small subset of northern public opinion during the 1840s and, and uh, 1850s. 
but a very important subset. You know, they, they become very much the conscience, uh, reminding Americans that if they really wanted to be consistent with their ideals, they had to do something dramatically to end uh, the enslavement of millions of Americans. Now, Zephaniah Kingsley is, is in a way, he's, he's in between these two men. He is a, he's a white man. He owns uh, plantations in northern Florida in the vicinity of Jacksonville. He uh, married at least three uh, women who began as his slaves or West Africans. He becomes a real admirer of Africans and African-Americans at the same time that he's a defender of slavery. But he insisted that that you could have slavery uh, without the kind of overt, visceral racism that he saw as distorting the United States. So he believed that uh, enslaved people should have opportunities to make extra money so they could buy their freedom. He then employed uh, former enslaved people to manage his properties, including his wife, who he freed and and made something of his, his first wife, I'm I'm saying Anna, to become something of his full partner. Now, when he's doing this, Florida is still part of the Spanish Empire. It gets absorbed into the United States in 1821. And when it does, uh, Kingsley is appalled by the introduction of the full legal system uh, of the southern United States, including its its uh, real restrictions on freeing enslaved people and uh, very severe restrictions on uh, those few freed people of color. And he becomes so upset by this that he, that he starts to relocate uh, much of his operation and uh, many of uh, his people uh, to Haiti, which he sees as a society that is much more committed to racial equality. So, so Kingley is a, a, a very interesting guy in that he sees uh, slavery as potentially a system that uh, of social mobility for Africans to be or, or incorporated into the United States and eventually to win their freedom and to win a full equality with white people, uh, which is something that could not be more different from what uh, Andrew Jackson had in mind. You divide your, your book into chapters that embrace... Uh, whole realms of thought, war, empire, democracy, slavery. You begin your chapter on slavery with an introduction to the character of Zephaniah Kinsley. Why do you begin your chapter on democracy with P.T. Barnum? <laughs> well, P.T. Barnum is a, is a fascinating character in that he um, born in Connecticut, most in New York City, um, uh, tries to figure out, he starts out in, in the mercantile business, and he, he's trying to figure out consumer tastes, and he's trying to figure out uh, how do you manipulate the public. Uh, and ultimately, he will become the ultimate American showman. He will found uh, B.T. Barnum's American Museum, uh, which is uh, something of a glorified circus and sideshow and set of curiosities from the four corners of the globe, many of them completely concocted, all of them put out of context. And what what he does, what his real genius is not to present these things as necessarily authentic, but to kind of challenge people to come in and see if, if they believe them or not. 
Uh, and so sometimes he, he presents them overtly as the truth, and then he plants stories in the newspaper calling into question, is the Fiji mermaid really a mermaid? And then people who might have seen it the first time would go back to look at it more closely to see if they could see the stitches or not. So, so Barnum is somebody who makes a very close study of the American people. Uh, and so I, I see him as a very indicative of the nature of democracy in the United States in the early 19th century, as a people who took a great pride in their skepticism and their ability to see through frauds, and yet people who are who can be defrauded, who can be deceived. But only if you allow them to engage their critical faculties up to a degree so that they can reassure themselves, I'm not being fooled. Barnum is, as I would say, the great American psychologist of the 19th century. And so that's why I opened the, the chapter. Is it's, it's an exploration of the ways in which democracy functions uh, in the early 19th century in, in ways that will often make us uncomfortable looking from our particular vantage point in time and to show that it all made sense to the people of the time, the great majority of them. Uh, at the same time that it generated critics who were worried that this is a democracy that is falling short of its promises of liberty and equality for all. So it's a holding in balance. I mean, Barnum is a dealer in both news and fake news, right? And, and the, how do you keep a balance between the mythology of democracy and the reality. I mean, that, and that's yeah. that's one of yeah. our arguments that's going on today. Yeah, and it's an argument that will go on forever. You know, myths sometimes get a bad name because we, we, we think myths are just lies. Myths are a lot more than lies. Um, myths are very simplified truths that are given very heavy symbolic power. So it... it it is a myth that uh, the, the founding fathers came together, united to create the federal constitution of 1787. It's a myth not that they came together and created this constitution. It's just that it overrides a, a lot of other facts, such as they disagreed quite fiercely about what they had created. During the process of creating it, they they came several times very close to rupturing that convention and going home. Many of the delegates did go home because they weren't happy with what was going on. So um, we, on the one hand, we, we, we like to have the comforting myth that once upon a time, America was led by perfectly wise men who came up with the ideal political system and that if we can just be true to their legacy, all will be right. That can be very reassuring. The problem comes in when when it, it becomes so alluring that we say we have completely fallen from that. Uh, and we then forget that in point of fact, there's been a lot of division in this country from the start between regions, between classes, between races, between genders that we've also uh, had to deal with. 
and that uh, what we can take away from the, from the founders that is most useful, in my opinion, is the notion that we have to work out our differences. We have to find compromises that won't necessarily, that certainly won't please everybody, uh, but that hanging together is a lot better than hanging separately. Well, I mean, it's it's a wonderful book, Alan, because I mean, you you show all of these contradictions in a uh, clear light. And the notion that America is most itself when most at odds with itself, it, it means that the, you know, we, we, we can look upon our current uh, commotion and divisions as proof that democracy is still alive <laughs> and that you know it's our circumstances are much more civil than they were in 1800 or 1830 or 1861 but the uh, but the fact that there is argument and that there is even violent argument is is a uh, Proof that the uh, our flag is still there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I do find it actually oddly reassuring to know that the United States has gone through some very bitter division and arguments in the past. Uh, I don't want to downplay too much the moment we're in now, where where I do think that democracy is is once again in some peril. But the solution, I think, ultimately to that is if we could just get everybody to, to turn down the temperature, uh, the rhetorical temperature a bit. That doesn't mean you have to give up your principles. Uh, everybody should argue their principles as eloquently as they can. Uh, I do think that, that we need to all become better at listening to people who violently disagree with us. And that there needs to be a recognition that compromise uh, and keeping this whole thing together, while that may seem much less satisfying than our particular fantasies of what the ideal republic and union should be, while that may be less satisfying than that, uh, it's the only way we're all going to be safe. And that that allows, I think, plenty of leeway for us all to be pushing for making this union even more perfect. But uh, unless there's a common commitment that you don't do things like invade Congress and seek to lynch people that you disagree with, and unless we're willing to try to improve the access of all Americans to voting— uh, unless we do those things, then then a lot of things can go awry. Well, I mean, it, in the 19th century, I mean, you had congressmen attacking each other on the, yeah. the, the yeah. floors of Congress. You had you had senators being shot down in Mississippi in the election of 1876. I mean, the at least we've come a little further than that. Uh, we have, uh, and let's not go back. <laughs> okay, so listen, Alan, I thank you for speaking with us today. This is 
Lewis Lapham talking to Alan Taylor about his wonderful new book, American Republics, A Continental History of the United States, 1783-1850. Thank you, Alan. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.